Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I want to read two scriptures up front that are going to provide the foundation for what I'm confident uh, the Lord has put in my heart. If you didn't receive a sermon card, there are a couple left. If you want to put your hand in the air, someone will serve you at this point. But if not, I want to read one from the Old Testament scriptures and one from the New. Leviticus 4 and verse 25. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Then the second is in the New Testament Scriptures, Acts 13 and verse 22. And when he, God, had removed him, Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, watch this, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. I want to preach a message to you today titled, Best After Ever. Best After Ever. And before I do, I want to pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he, you sent him. He has established the kingdom of God that there is now open before every one of us a new life available, a new heart available, a new future available. Father, I thank you that the blood of Jesus comes against every wall, every attitude, everything that's contrary to the will and purpose of God. We ask your kingdom come and your will be done. Use me, Holy Spirit. Penetrate hearts and minds and marriages. Pull down strongholds and lies. We'll give you all the glory, King Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Now, with the last two weeks addressing sex and sexual issues and sexuality, some of you may be defaulted to thinking after I announced the title of this message, Best After Ever, that we would be discussing the issue of makeup sex. That is not the case. That is not the case. But on that note, there are couples that practice makeup sex in a way that's actually damaging to the overall long-term health of their marriage. There's also couples who have never had makeup sex after a fight, which also in the long run is damaging to the overall health of the marriage. But that's for another day. That's for another time. Today the theme is how do you, how do I, how do we have the best relationship after something bad, tragic, difficult happens. See, listen to me, mistakes happen. Hurts take place. Wrong words are said. Wrong responses are acted out. Failure occurs. Tragedies encountered. Changes are faced. Circumstances arrive. And the two questions that meet us up front when you think about the things that take place, is what happens after it happens. What do I, what do you, what do we do after it happens? Maybe someone's relational it is a spouse who left. Divorce papers that were received. A parent who has cut you off. A friend who took what you said in confidentiality and shared it anyway. A neighbor who stole from you. A spouse with an addiction. A sister who sabotages every dating relationship you seek to have. A conversation that has left your heart broken. An argument that has brought the marriage to a standstill. A friend who posted hurtful things about you on social media. A boss that has taken advantage of you. The question that hits us up front 
is what happens after such an it happens. What do you do after an it happens? Oh, listen, listen, I know. Because I've been there. Sure, you never imagined it would happen. Sure, you never thought it would be a part of your story and the overall story of God. Sure, this it did not fit into your plan, your vision board, your ideal marriage, your ideal relationship, the plan or where you thought that friendship was going. But listen, the question we're confronted with is how do we experience the best possible after it happens? How do you experience the best possible friendship after it happens? How do you experience the best possible marriage after it happens? How do you experience the best relationship after it happened? Now maybe I didn't mention your it specifically. But this word is still for you today. God drew you. God knew you'd be here. He's ready to help you have ears to hear and a heart to receive. His word to you. And it's good that even if you didn't hear your it, to understand that as ministers we can't mention every it possible. But it's good to grow and learn how to take what God's communicating to a community and apply it specifically to where you're at, to your it. You know, when I think about it, and I think about what happens after an it occurs, it makes me think about what's taking place in Major League Baseball. Now, I played baseball for 20 years or so, or 20 plus years, and it's an interest of mine, and I've been keeping up with what's taking place. And I understand not all of you are baseball fans, and that's okay. But if you haven't heard, it's just came out that Major League Baseball, the organization, has confirmed and determined that the Houston Astros cheated when they won the World Series. Now, listen to me it happened. And like with any other it, once it's happened, there is no ability to change the fact that it has happened, that it's occurred. So the whole story now is what's going to be done in regards to what's already happened. Regarding the relationship between Major League Baseball, the organization, and the team called the Houston Astros. What's going to happen now regarding the relationship between Astro players and other players in the league. What's going to happen now with the relationship between fans who make the game possible and people's career and people's paycheck possible? What's going to happen between fans and the game of baseball? This message fired in my spirit and my soul the other day when I was reading and thinking about a man named David in Scripture. An individual that God said an amazing thing. And you don't find God saying this about every even hero of faith in Scripture. But he says it about this man, David. And God said regarding David that he was a man. David was a man after God's own heart. In fact, that's the one of our main Scriptures that we read up front. The one found in the New Testament is Acts 13.22. It says, And when he, God, had removed him, King Saul... He raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And I had this thought, it hit me like a lightning. Like a lightning bolt. After it happens, will we still be after God's heart? After your it happens, will you still be after God's heart? Makes me think about the the descendants of Israel. Remember, Israel's grandfather was Abraham. Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had a man who at birth was named Jacob, but God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And all the descendants of Israel then, for 400 plus years, were found to be in slavery. They were enslaved. God begins to act on behalf of the descendants of Israel. He begins to show His power. He begins to show like we sang that all things are possible. 
that He's a God that can move mountains and it doesn't matter if the mountain's been there 400 and plus years. That He's a God that can change situations and He's a God that can move even after it have happened. And He begins to display His power and His great grace. He does signs and wonders and great miracles and He brings them out showing His mighty arm. God begins to tell them, I got a better future than your past. I got a promised land for you, not a place of bondage anymore. And then though he leads them into a wilderness. Now if you don't know much about wilderness, wilderness represents a dry season. When you go into a wilderness, listen, there's no carnival, there's no shopping mall, there's no video games, there's no Netflix to binge, there's nothing to stimulate the senses. It's dry. It's barren. At times, it's a place of despair. You don't know where the water's going to come from tomorrow, where the food's going to come from tomorrow. You're just thinking, can I take another step? Can I make it another day? And it's in this place called a wilderness that God gives them a prescribed manner and commands while in the wilderness. I'm probably pretty confident today that some of you where you're at feels like a wilderness. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a relationship with a sibling. sibling. Maybe it's something that's happened in your career with your boss or at your job. Does anybody feel like they're in a wilderness? And it's there in the wilderness that God gave the nation of Israel a prescribed manner. Commands and sacrifices to offer. I have found often that after experiencing an it, it leads to a wilderness experience. A wilderness experience is a place that you can experience bewilderment. You can, in a sense, feel lost to vision. You don't know which way to go, which way is out of it. It seems so vast. It seems like it's never going to end. It seems so prolonged. And yet it was in the wilderness season that God prescribed a manner, a manner of worship. Let me talk to you about this prescribed manner. You read about it all through the book of Leviticus and and the book of Exodus and what you find is God established a prescribed manner for His old covenant people, the nation of Israel. Listen, and this prescribed manner was regarding the issues of life. It was regarding how they were to relate to God and relate with others. And when you look at this prescribed manner that God gives them there in the wilderness, you find that there was a main point there was a main point of emphasis, there was a main focal point, and it was called the altar. And when you re- begin to learn and read about the altar, you find that in God's prescribed manner, there was specifics regarding the altar that were to happen. Something was to happen as the, at the base of the altar. Let's talk about this base. This base, as one of the prescribed manners that were given, was to demonstrate the foundation of how they were to relate to God and relate to others, which, by the way, was the two greatest commandments or the essence regarding the prescribed manner God gives them and in the Old Covenant. And notice, if you missed it, what our other main scripture said, Leviticus 4.25. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and watch this, pour its blood at the base of the altar. Pour its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Notice blood had to be at the base. Notice blood had to be poured at the base of the altar. Now if you're not aware, God sends His Son Jesus shows up in history and He claims to be God's Son. And He not only makes that claim, but then He says, Hey, all the scriptures that God had the nation of Israel preserve and pass down generation to generation, all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the Psalms, they all testify of Me. Why is that important? Because when you look at the prescribed manner that God gives the nation of Israel there in the wilderness, it all was foreshadowing and pointing to substance and reality that we would find in Jesus and in the new covenant. And here's the clear application. 
The clear application is that the base of our relationship with God and our relationship with others is to have the blood poured on it. It's got to have the blood poured on it. That the base in relating to God and relating to others and the prescribed manner that God gave is that blood's got to be on the base. On the base. And as I thought about the base and I thought about what's happening in baseball, I thought about a way to help us visually think about the prescribed manner and the base that God has for you and I and relating to Him and relating to others. See, a a base in baseball has four corners. The altar and the base of the altar had four corners. And in baseball, you can do a lot of things right. Like, Like you can see the ball well. You can have a good swing. You can hit the ball in gaps. Or you can even hit a home run and hit the ball over the wall. You can run fast. You can run right. But listen, if you miss the base, you'll still be out. There's been people that hit the ball over the fence and should have been a home run, but they missed the base and therefore were out. Meaning there's a lot of people that can try to do what God has for them and do God's will, but if we miss the base, we're still outside of the prescribed manner that God has for us. And when you look at this prescribed manner, that blood had to be on the base of the altar, what you find is that God's trying to communicate some things to us. I want to look at four things that blood being on the base of the altar communicates to us and that we find in fulfillment in Jesus, just like there's four corners on the base. The first corner and thing that you find in God's prescribed manner is all four start with an F. The first is forgiveness. That the prescribed manner for our relationships is to have a base for those relationships is forgiveness. Meaning from the outset, we're never to try to enter into a relationship with God or relationship with others without understanding that at the base of that relationship, there's got to be blood and blood speaks to forgiveness. That there has to be a posture of forgiveness Forgiveness is an issue that at the very base of relating to God and relating to others comes into play. Here's what it means for marriages. It means a gospel-based marriage and relationship is sufficient for after experiencing its only when it has at the base the blood of Jesus. Only when it has at the base the need of forgiveness. Secondly, the second corner of the base speaks to forsaking self-righteousness. When you look at God's prescribed manner, He said, you got to put blood at the base of the altar. What He's saying is, is He's saying your own blood, sweat, and tears can't be the base of relating to God and relating to others. It's not sufficient. That there has to be something that God provides that allows us to forsake depending on our own ability, our own righteousness, our own good works, and being right in relating to God and relating others. The base, and when he said you got to pour blood on the base, it speaks to that we have to learn to have a gospel posture and the base of our lives and heart, a willingness to forsake self-righteousness. That you by yourself can get right with God, can stay right with God, can remain right with God, and you by yourself can stay right with others. He said, no, no, you got to forsake self-righteousness. That's what the blood at the base speaks to. So forgiveness, the first corner. The second corner, forsake self-righteousness. The third is fire continually. When you go look at this prescribed manner that God gives the nation of Israel, He said, listen, there has to be fire continually on my altar. In fact, you read Leviticus. In Leviticus uh, chapter 6, verse 13, it says, A fire shall always be burning, always be burning. On the altar it shall not go out. Fire's got to stay on the altar. On the altar. There's a fire that's got to stay on the altar. The fourth corner represents, when you begin to think about the blood had to be poured on the base, is finding grace. Finding grace. 
Now, oftentimes, even at times, I'll misspeak just because it's been so commonly said in Western evangelical or Western Christianity, but we get mercy and grace confused. And a lot of times we'll say grace covers. Thank God for His grace. It forgives. Well, listen, that's involved in God's forgiveness, but it's by His, because of His mercy that we're not consumed. Meaning it's His mercy that covers us from being consumed. Grace, biblically, means God's influence and empowerment. It means God providing for us what we could not provide for ourselves. So grace is God's enabling ability. It's God's influential ability. And the fourth corner finding grace is necessary because without grace, we can't move forward from the base. And in baseball, once you reach first base, the goal is not to stay there. The goal is to move forward. And for some of you, the goal is not for you to stay in a wilderness in your marriage, in a wilderness in relating to others, in a wilderness of what you're facing. The goal is that God's got a, 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 a future for you and He wants to move you forward. But if you don't get the base right and you don't find empowerment and grace, you can't move forward. So many people get stuck in difficult seasons and after it happens because they don't know or remember or have the base right. The base right. So forgiveness, forsake self-righteousness, fire continually and finding grace. So when you talk about finding grace is that nobody in their own ability could create a bull or goat that's necessary in the Old Testament prescribed manner to sacrifice. No one in their own ability could create blood to pour at the altar. And you have to find grace, meaning you've got to understand that God provided for us what we could not provide for ourselves. God has enabled and provided His influence to make what was impossible on our own become possible when we find grace with God. So God gives this base. And He said blood's got to be at the base. And this speaks to this foundation of these four F's and really the core of the gospel, the core of the gospel of God, the heart of God towards us, the heart of the gospel towards us. But then after God determined the prescribed manner for the base, He said, from that base, there is to be some things offered to me. Once you get the base right, there's some things to be offered on the base. And you can read all about them. And these offerings tell us and instruct us like, what happens when someone intentionally sins? Well, God prescribed what's to be offered. What happens when you sin unintentionally? God prescribed what's to be offered. What about when someone sins, but they're not conscious and aware? It's, called, it's unknown to them. But then it becomes known to them. What are they to do and offer? God prescribes and speaks to it. What about... If someone has sinned against you and it's unknown to them, God prescribes what you have to do if you want it reconciled. God gives this prescription. He talks about restitution. He talks about there's some things, listen, you got to get out of the camp. There's some things you got to get out of the relationship, out of the marriage. There's some things you got to get out of the friendship if you're going to be able to move forward towards God's goal for that marriage, God's goal for the relationship, God's goal for your future. Then he said, listen, there's some you got to actually get out of your camp. There's some people that in order for you to make the promised land, you can't let them stay a part of your camp and a part of your journey. Even the New Testament, as we see the fulfillment, it said, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good character. Then there were instructions regarding what you get a hold of and what you hold on to. And God said, listen, there's these things called Thanksgiving offerings and offerings where you got to get your hand full of flour. Why? What's he saying? He's saying there's some things you got to let go of so you can get the right thing in your hand to offer up. So God gives all this prescription. Then years later, a man comes, David. He's from the nation of Israel. And God says this amazing thing about David. Now, when you think about David, 
you got to remember that after the new covenant was established through Jesus shedding His blood on the base called the cross and His body being broken, that the early church and the early preachers like the apostles and prophets, they didn't have the Bible that you and I have. Listen, New Testament letters weren't written yet. Churches hadn't been planted yet. Even the Gospels that, that uh, record the life and, and birth and ministry of Jesus hadn't been written yet. So what did the early church use when they sought to preach Jesus? They used the Old Testament Scriptures. And one of the figures they kept pointing to was David. And this is why in Acts 13, when Dr. Luke recorded what was taking place in the early church and recorded some of the, the messages that the early church preached, he mentions David. So there in Acts 13, 22, our other main text, remember? It said, And when he, God, had removed him, Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. But it didn't stop there. Who will do all my will. Now here's what this means. For David to be a man after God's own heart, who would do all of God's will in the Old Covenant means he had to receive the prescribed manner God gave in order to relate to God and relate to others. So when it says that David was a man after God's heart, what that means is, is in David you find the base of what it looks like to relate to God and relate to others. You find David and you find in his story that he had a heart, he had a base of forgiveness. And forgiveness. See, listen, to be after God's heart means David had to understand that God is a forgiving God. Listen to me. God's posture towards all His creation regardless of what they have done and regardless of what you have done, is that He's ready to forgive. The base of our Creator towards us, His creation, the base of, and foundation of God's heart towards us and to all is forgiveness. And so for David to be a man after God's heart means David is one who gets the base and gets a heart that understands God's ready to forgive and that David's ready to forgive. And David is one, he not only forgives, but he's willing to receive forgiveness. Secondly, if David's to be a man after God's heart, and he's got the base of the prescribed manner of what it looks like to relate to God and relate to others, he's got to, like the second corner of, a, of the base, he's got to forsake self-righteousness. He's got to forsake self-righteousness. He's got to forsake the idea that through his own works, his own effort, he can be in right standing with God and right standing with others. No, no, listen. To be after God's heart, he's got to understand, no, the blood's got to be on the base of the heart. That the blood is the foundation and the base of understanding the gospel and relating to God and others is, yes, forgiveness, but secondly, forsake self-righteousness. You remember the story? David wasn't a perfect man. That's going to become important. But David was said to be a man after God's own heart. And David did something that was wicked and sin. He took another man's wife. And then he orchestrated plans to ensure that her husband would probably be killed in battle. And he was. Then he took that man's wife as his own. Now this is very important. All the times when you read about David, about his his life, it always says he was a man after God's heart, but it always says that he had another man's wife. Because God's a God of truth. He, he don't deny the reality of what's happened. He'll forgive. He'll release. But you can't change the it. The it happened. It's what do you do after the it? What do you do after the it when the it happens? And so David for a year outwardly is depending on his right standing with God and his standing with others, he was king. He's depending on self-righteousness, meaning he's hiding his sin and what's happened. So God sends the prophet Samuel, who was good friends with uh, David. And Samuel comes and he tells this parable, this story. He said, there was a man who had everything 
everything. And then there was another man who only had one valuable thing. And the man who had everything took the only valuable thing the other man had. Now watch this. David goes into a fury. He said, who is that man? And when he did, the thing that he had been hiding and the veil of self-righteousness he had been living comes up to his consciousness. And it hits him. And he goes, I am that man. Meaning, David, to be a man after God's heart, had to forsake his self-righteousness. Say He had to forsake posturing himself before God and others as if he was perfect and could always do right and be right on his own ability and achievement. He had to forsake it. And it says in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David then said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Because there's the big thing about it. And this is going to help you a little later. But when I sin against a brother and a sister, when I sin against my spouse or someone, the really root is I'm sinning against God. Because I'm, they're made in the image of God. And God and John, the Apostle John said, how can we think we love God who we can't see if we can't love the, the one that we can see? So David forsakes self-righteousness. He's a man after God's heart. Listen, after it happened. Thirdly, and you can read Psalms 51. He talks about willful sin, all of that, and he confesses. Then, thirdly, when David, when it comes to his story and the base of the gospel, David served, his boss basically was King Saul. Now, King Saul got jealous of David. They sang, people sang songs in the culture. King Saul slayed thousands. David slayed his ten thousand. Saul begins to get jealous. He begins to get angry. He throws spears at David. And David hadn't done anything wrong against Saul. In fact, their relationship started because Saul was oppressed. He had depression and oppression. And David would come and he would play his harp. The presence of God would come in. The revealed presence. And that oppression would lift. Here's someone, listen, who served Saul and has done no wrong to Saul, but now he finds himself under a boss or in a relationship where the person is out to kill him. David finds himself now living in the wilderness. He's having to sleep in caves. He's having to climb in between small rocks and hide from Saul's armies and hide from the threats and the murderous threats of Saul. There was a time David was in a cave. And Saul had to relieve himself. He had to go pee-pee, number one. And he goes into this cave. And he don't know David's hiding in the back. And all the people around David said, Now's the time. God's put your enemy in your hand. Kill him. Think of all he's done against you. Think how he's made your life miserable. Think how the hardships he's done. And your hand was innocent. Your heart was innocent. But now God's delivering to your hand. And David said, No, 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 no. Dare I take vengeance, retribution in my own hand? He said, that's God's place. Watch this. You remember number three, the base of the altar and the prescribed manner? The fire had to burn continually on the altar. David, as a man of, after God's heart, displayed this, meaning he let the fire and the wrath and the anger he had against Saul and the desire to vindicate himself, the desire for Saul to be judged, any malice and anger towards Saul, he didn't leave it in his hand. He left it on the altar where God said that fire must always burn. We can't let wrath and anger and a sense of vengeance burn in our heart. you got to leave it on the altar. you got to leave it in the hands of God. David demonstrated that. Then David, he finds empowerment. He finds empowerment to obey God. He finds empowerment, listen, to live a life, the life that God has for him. Because you remember the text, Acts 13, 22, said David is a man after my own heart. That's what God said about him. But watch this, who also will do all my will. David found empowerment to do God's will. See, once you get on the base of baseball, the wheel 
of the team in the game is that you score. You don't get stuck, but from the right posture, you move forward. You find empowerment to move forward, to reach the goal, to experience the life that God has for you. And David found empowerment. And that's why in Acts 13, 16, when the apostles in the early church and the prophets preached and they pointed to David about finding God's will and about Jesus, here's what they said about him in Acts 13, 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. Oh, that's my heart for you and for your marriage and for this church is that after it happens, we can't change the it, but you still have a heart after God's will for you. David, after Saul, after all the difficulty. He had sons that rebelled against him. He had people that turned against him. But after it all, he still fulfilled God's will for him. He served God faithfully in his generation by doing the will of God. Now think about that. David still offered up the good works that God had for him. He still walked in the the ultimate calling that God had for him. And I think about how was David able to keep the base of his heart after God's heart prescribed in the altar, in the base of the altar that the blood speaks to. How was David able, after all that, to keep offering to God obedience and fulfilling ultimately God's will for him and his generation? How was he able to do it? Because listen, he found the grace and source to keep God's base as the base of his heart. To keep God's ability as the empowerment for him to do God's will. How did he do it? It's something called tabernacle passion. David had passion, watch this, for God's revealed manifest presence. When God prescribed the manner of worship, he said, listen, I want to get as close as to my people as possible. So he creates this pattern called the tabernacle. Originally, Moses created the tabernacle and had the people. But later, David set back up the tabernacle, meaning David made a way for all people to actually seek the revealed, manifest presence of God. And David set up musicians that worship 24 hours a day and would minister unto God. They had their backs to the people because they were just focusing on the Lord. And that allowed people to come out to where this tent was and start spending time close to God's manifest presence. And David was passionate for the presence of God. And David was able to keep the base, God's heart as the base of his heart. And David was able to find empowerment to serve God and fulfill God's plan for him and his generation because he spent time in the revealed manifest presence of God. He found empowerment from the presence of God. What does this now mean? And what does this speak to you and I? After it happens, what does this mean? Listen, here's what it means. It means, are you still, after it happens, going to be after God's heart? After it happens, are you still going to be after God's heart? That's the question. We can't go back and change it. Whether it was done to you or you did it to someone, The question that confronts us is after it happens, will we still be after God's heart? The heart that He revealed in His prescribed manner of what it looks like to relate to Him and relate to others. Meaning for you and I, even after it happens... Are we going to be after God's heart? Because if we're after God's heart, we'll learn from David how he was still after God's heart after it all. And he found forgiveness, received forgiveness, and gave forgiveness. David forgave. Because he allowed the base of God to prescribe and lead him on what is to be the base of his heart even after it happens. See, listen to me. The sacrifice... And blood of Jesus is to be the base for our relating to one another. Do you know why? Because none are perfect. And here's what God's saying. He's saying as His people, we should never enter into a relationship with another 
enter into marriage, enter into a church, enter into a relationship with the community without understanding God's prescribed manner and His base and His base becoming the base of our heart for that relationship. And that is forgiveness. Why? Because every all have sinned. And there's not one relationship you'll ever face where at some point they won't do wrong and you won't need to forgive. Forgive. What this is teaching us, right here in our wilderness, right here in 2020, what this is teaching us is that as gospel people, Jesus people, we're to have the base of our relating to God and relating to others, we're to have the posture of ready to forgive. Why? Because God is ready to forgive. That we have to actually, before we enter into relationships, already have a posture that we understand at some point we're going to have to forgive. Because at some point they're going to sin. And at some point we're going to sin. I like when it comes to Forgiveness in the marriage context, what Stephen Arterburn said. He said, forgiveness within marriage is an act that binds two people together in the midst of their failures and in spite of their imperfections. See, our posture towards one another is to be a posture that we're ready to forgive. Why? Listen. Because as Jesus people, we've been forgiven. And as Jesus people, we understand at times we are going to need someone else to forgive us. Jesus, as the fulfillment of this in the new covenant, the substance, He tells this story in Matthew 18. He tells the story of a man who owed his master a lifetime of debt. No way he could ever, ever pay it. And he comes and he begs the master for forgiveness. The master has compassion, forgives and releases him of his debt. Then this man who's forgiven of over a lifetime of wrong and debt, he goes to another friend who owed him insignificant to the debt that he owed the master. And he begins to demand his friend pay the little in comparison to what he's already been forgiven. And he shows him no mercy. He said, I'm going to turn you over to the judge and put you in prison. And Jesus speaks about that. And here's what he says in Matthew 8 and verse 32. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also? Should you not also? Should you not also take on the same base? Take on the same posture? And had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? He calls it wicked. Listen to me. Because it is wicked. It's wicked when you and I, who have received so much forgiveness from God, from our sin, refuse to allow God's posture and base of the gospel and the need of the blood become the posture and the base in our heart towards another who sinned against us. Listen to me. Oftentimes people get stuck in dealing with the base and they can't move forward to God's next season, to second base, third base, to home, to God's ultimate goal for marriage or a relationship because they get confused on what's to be their example. Our example and posture towards someone who sins against us and wrong is to be found in God's example towards us. God's example. Not culture's example. God's example. In Ephesians 4.32 it says, listen, here's our posture. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Now, normally we stop there. But you've got to remember, the Holy Spirit didn't inspire chapter and verses. Chapters and verses were put in by translators so that you and I, when we talk and exhort each other about Scripture, we know what we're referring to. So Paul actually continues his thought in the very next chapter, which is the very next verse, Ephesians 5 and 1 and 2. And watch what it says. Therefore be imitators of God. 
as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us. And given Himself for us an offering. He'll say, oh, in the New Testament, we're not under the Old Covenant, it's passed away. Yeah, but the substance of the Old Covenant is the substance we find in Jesus. And there's still things that we as Jesus people are to offer up. When you offer up forgiveness, that is what He says. When you offer up tenderheartedness, guess what you're offering up? An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. God says, look, you're, you're following my example, and it smells wonderful before me. Ephesians 4.32, he said, Be kind to one another, tend to forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. God's the example. Watch this. It's not suggested for people of God. It's commanded. It's to be the absolute base of relating to God and relating to others looks like. Now understand, a lot of times we get hung up because we think, well, if I forgive them, is that saying that I okay with what they did? Of course not. Of course not. But God's example is to be our example. And think about this. God's forgiveness is not based on if the person deserves it. God forgiving you wasn't based on the fact that you deserved it. So our forgiveness is not to be based on whether the person deserves it or even if they feel sorry or repentant about it. It's to be based on God's example that we've experienced, if we've experienced it, that He's ready to forgive. That He forgives. And this is the crux of the matter for you and I. Because it's one thing to say we understand and know the gospel. But when we truly have the base of the gospel, that blood, it's got to be, and the blood speaks to forgiveness that then it empowers and leads us to be ready to forgive others. To offer forgiveness, not because they deserve it, not because they even asked for it, not because they've even repented of it, but because our Father's example is our example. Listen to me. It's also unconditional. Jesus has already shed His blood and allowed His body to be broken, whether sinners and people around on earth Receive it or not. But He's offered it. Jesus has already offered up His blood to God. So we offer it whether, regardless of the condition that they have. Now listen to me. We cannot control what others do to us, but we can determine how we respond to the hurt. God set up the world where He refused to set it up where He would control what humans did. People all say, say, God's in control. That's rubbish. Not in the way we say that in English. That's, that's doctrines of men established. God's sovereign. He's not in control. He gave us the ability to make choices. And yet with giving us the ability of choice, to make choices, He unconditionally has chose to have a posture ready to forgive. Now listen, this means faith is a key to forgive. So many people can't, can't get to first base even, much less move forward to what God has for them because it takes faith to forgive. Why? That you believe the God you talk about, the God you say is your God, the God you sing about, that He's actually bigger than what they've done to you. That He's bigger than where we've been hurt. He's bigger than, than parents that's rejected us. He's bigger than where siblings have sinned against us. He's bitter, bit better than where society or bosses have stolen from us. He's bigger than it all. And when you have faith that God's bigger than it all, it helps to forgive. Because you say, despite what they've done to me, my God's bigger. Despite Israel being in bondage for 400 plus years, God was bigger than all that they knew for years and years and able to release. And it's the same with us. This also means, listen, focus is a key to forgiving. So often we get stuck because we're focusing on what they did or the fact that they won't 
ask for forgiveness. Or they won't change. Listen, and as long as you focus that, it magnifies in your heart and mind the wrong. And then it becomes hard to forgive. Listen, you have to focus on your example and focus on Jesus. And you'll find as you focus on Jesus, you'll find that the base of the gospel, He's got grace available to enable you to forgive. So many people have a hard time forgiving because they look and focus on the wrong things. Secondly, after it happens, will you still be after God's heart? If you're still running after God's heart, it means you're going to forsake self-righteousness. This is another reason why so many people get stuck and they can't move to the life that God has and they can't score and experience the promises of God for their marriage or relationships. Is because in Mark 11, 25 and 26, Jesus said, when you stand praying you got to forgive anyone who's wronged you. Or your prayer life's hindered. Now watch this. He said, forgive anyone. Listen to me. And anyone means you. Some of you are stuck because you keep pouring on self-wrath and self-condemnation and self-guilt and self-hatred because of where you failed. And Jesus said, no, no, no. The base of the gospel is we have to also forgive ourselves. We can't go back and change it, but it's what happens after it happens. Will you still be after God's heart? If you're still after God's heart, He's got grace to enable you to also forgive yourself. To forgive yourself. And that's what forsaking self-righteousness looks like. Oftentimes people also get stuck and they're unable to forgive because or forgive themselves is because they are self-righteous. They have a standard for themselves that even God didn't set for them. Meaning, God knew, though His standard for us was to never sin, He knew we would not be without sin, so He provided blood at the base. He provided the blood of Jesus to forgive. And who are you, if God's ready to forgive you, to keep holding unforgiveness against yourself? That's self-righteousness. you got to forgive yourself. Here's another thing about forsaking self-righteousness. Oftentimes we get stuck. We look at the sin of others and we compare our current current season compared to what they did against us and we feel better than them. But watch this. I could take all of us to Galatians 5 and I can find you in the list of Galatians 5 at some point in your life just like I can find me. And you read Galatians 5... We all can commit what's called a work of the flesh. And a lot of people get stuck and can't move forward because of self-righteousness. They're so focused on the wrong they did that they don't realize at some point in life, you're going to be the one. I'm the man. I'm the woman, meaning at some point you're going to be the one that's wronged another and need forgiveness. Thirdly, remember that third corner? Fire continually. What does that mean for us in New Testament? Well, as the band comes, look at Ephesians 4.26. I think they have it to put up. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Listen. Wrath, bitterness, anger that leads to sin, clamor, evil speaking, that's called... Unholy fire. It's called unlawful fire. We can't offer that to God. And in the New Testament, what fire continually means is you have to leave your anger towards people, your wrath towards people, your bitterness towards people, your malice towards people. you got to leave it at the altar. you got to leave it in God's hands on the cross. Because you remember in the Old Testament, the prescribed manner is the fire had to burn all night. It couldn't go out. Why do you think Paul then says, look, before the sun goes down, you got to deal with that unholy fire. He goes on to say, if you don't deal with the unholy fire, you'll give place to the devil. So for us, as a base in our heart, is we got to keep saying, no, vengeance is the Lord's. I'm not going to take it in my hand. I'm not going to hold on to bitterness. I'm not going to hold on to wrath. I'm not going to hold on wanting them to die or judgment. I'm leaving all that up to God, just like David did. 
after it happens, will you still be after God's heart? Because if you're after God's heart, you won't just keep allowing that unholy fire to stay in your heart against the person. You'll let it rest on the base of the cross of Jesus and you'll leave judgment and you'll leave wrath and you'll leave all that up to God and His work in Jesus. Fire continually. You know that why that's important? Because if you hold on to the unholy fire, it will hinder God's pure fire from being experienced. God's purifier is needed for you to finish the race that He set before you. God's purifier is needed to keep you diligent, serving the Lord, and doing the will of God. That's why Paul wrote to believers in Romans 12, 11. He said, not lagging in diligence, not lagging in the fervency of the Spirit, but serving the Lord. So what if you even thought that it's worth allowing the fire to stay on Jesus? Allowing Jesus and God and what He's done in Jesus to take care of it so that you can then be released to move forward in God's purpose for you. What if you saw it that way? What if you understand that if you hold on to the wrong fire and don't forgive, then God's going to allow things to hold on to you. And He can't move you forward. He can't move you out of the wilderness season. He can't move you forward towards the promised land and the promises that are yes and amen in Christ. And that's why God in the Old Testament prescribed the offering that you had to come with your hands filled with flour. What's he saying? He's saying you got to let go of you wanting to take matters in your own hand and execute judgment and penalty and fight and malice and hatred towards them. you got to let go of that so that you can offer the flour God wants. And that's thanksgiving. A lot of times that unforgiveness and what people have done to us, it keeps us from being aware of all that God's blessed us with. And he said, you got to let go of that so that you can get in your hand praises. Praises. Let me tell you, people that don't praise, it's because they are not aware of the base of the gospel and they've allowed other things to blind their vision of the goodness of God. You say, why hands? I come from a different background. No, because it's commanded. It's a commanded sacrifice even in the New Testament. He says, lift your hand. Lift your hands in prayer. Why? Because when you have them lifted, you can't have your hands on the neck of a brother and sister wanting to kill them, condemn them, pour wrath on them. Lift your hands. Holy hands is what he says. So, how in the world could David, with all he went through, with all the it's that happened, how after all the it's could he still be a man after God's own heart, still doing God's will and all that his that God had for him in his generation? How did he keep it as the base of his heart? How did he keep God's base as the base of his heart and find empowerment? Remember, he had tabernacle passion. You find the empowerment to keep the base of the gospel in your heart and from there be able to offer things to God like forgiveness, praise, thanksgiving. When you realize that now Christ in you is the hope of glory, That there is now within you the Spirit of God who can energize you and can work to will and to do according to His good pleasure. That He can work in your heart to keep God's prescribed manner as the base of your heart. And from there, then you're not hindered from doing all of the will of God. How many people are stuck right now because an it happened? And if they stay stuck, they're never going to be able to offer to God the good works that He's created them for in Christ Jesus. If you hold on to that, then your season's going to hold on to you. You'll never experience second base, third base, scoring, experiencing what God has for you. So the question is, after it happens, are you still after God's heart? Heart revealed in the base, and then secondly, are you still after God's will? So many people, because they were hurt at church or hurt by this person who claimed Jesus, they allow that to keep them from being after God's will anymore. They forget the prophecies that God declared over them when they first met. That I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That I got a promised land for you just like I have for the nation of Israel. That I got some honey and I got some dew. And I got some things you didn't build but I want to give you. I have free grace and free provisions I want to give you because you've received Jesus. My son. So many people. They allow what's happened. They're no longer after God's will. Will you be after it? Not just God's will, will you be after all God's will? Because sometimes it means you got a relationship go. You got to make sure they're out of the camp of you. Sometimes it means if they have unknown sin, that obeying all of God's will is learning to confront people face to face. Saying, you might not be aware, 
But according to Jesus, what you did to me, you sinned against me. You make them aware. See, it's one thing to to only be after the parts of God's will that we want. David found grace in God's presence to even obey and do God's will in areas that's not currently comfortable. And God's got the same grace for you. He's here for you today. And the work of the Holy Spirit can work in our hearts so that the base of the gospel, the four corners of forgiveness and forsaking self-righteousness and fire continually being in the right place and finding grace can become the base and the posture of our heart in relating to God and relating to others so that we're not hindered from being able to fulfill all God's will for us in this generation. Who's here saying, I I can't change that it's happened, but I'm still after God's heart. I'm still after God. I'm not going to allow what the enemy meant for evil to keep me from God's best. I'm not going to allow what they did to me hold me back. I'm still after God's will. I'm still after God's will. I'm still after His heart. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.